Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you've always wanted to visit the battlefields of Gallipoli, and if you're into military history, you really should do that, I've got a great opportunity for you. Coming up in September 2020, we've got the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour. Now, this is a type of tour we launched in 2019, and basically it's the only tour that I personally escort. So in 2019, we went to the Western Front, and in 2020, we're going to Gallipoli. It's going to be absolutely extraordinary. We are going to walk the ground as the Anzacs did. And as a special bonus, it's not just going to be me escorting this tour. We are also going to have the one and only Mr. Peter Hart, the historian from the Imperial War Museum that you would know from past episodes of this podcast, one of our most popular contributors. He knows Gallipoli better than anyone else, so he and I are going to be escorting this very special tour. So it's going to be brilliant. We'd love to see you there. It's really limited. We're only going to have 20 or 25 passengers on this tour, uh, and it's been on sale for a couple of months and it's selling really strongly so there's not many places left if you would love to explore gallipoli in the company of two historians who know it and live the story of gallipoli there's no better opportunity this is a unique tour we're not going to run it again if we do it will be many years in the future so don't miss this opportunity if you want to come to gallipoli and walk the ground with us so it departs on the 16th of september 2020 from istanbul we spent some time in istanbul and then we're going to head down to the peninsula and bring your walking shoes because we are going to get off the beaten track there's hidden paths there's trenches that have been revealed we're going to walk the ridges and the gullies just like the anzacs did and we're going to get a unique perspective on this absolutely wonderful battlefield i love gallipoli i can't wait to get back there come with me come on the matt mclaughlin signature tour with the special guest peter hart departs as i said 16 september 2020 from istanbul for details go to battlefields.com.au a living history production this is the living history podcast broadcasting live across the airwaves Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and my guest today is someone who does a job that I think a lot of you will be very envious of. It's Jo Hook and she is uh, one of the talented historians that we use on our Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, in particular to the Western Front. Um, but she is a full-time professional battlefield guide. She is literally living the dream of those of us who are battlefield nerds and I, she's she's in Australia, she's based in the UK but she's in Australia uh, for a short amount of time, and I wanted to sit down with her and just hear all about her adventures on the battlefield and what it means to her to be a battlefield guide. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this fascinating topic. You're very welcome, and thank you for uh, welcoming me to the office here in Manly. Why don't we? I really want to know your story about 
what motivated you to become a battlefield guide about how you got to do it. So let's start at the beginning. How did you well well have have you always been interested in the topic of 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 battlefields and war your whole life? Yes, I have. Um it's uh not well, it's quite a long story, so I'll keep it I'll cut it short a little bit, but um my father had three daughters and I was the very last daughter, which he hoped would be a boy, and I'm not a boy as you can probably hear. Um and uh, so, therefore, my dad uh, brought me up. I was brought up on all of his stories. He was a Second World War veteran. So instead of having a book to read of an evening, he would say, do you want a story? And I'd be, Dad, tell me what you did in the war. And on top of that, my mum lived through the Blitz in London. So if it wasn't my dad, it would be, tell me what you did in the Blitz, mum. And that's how it all started, being the daughter of a Second World War veteran. So right from an early age, I've always been interested in military history, history in general, and battlefields. So how did you get into being a full-time professional battlefield guide? Okay. So again, I will try and keep a long story quite short. I worked for the Ministry of Defence in uh, in London and then got a job in Hong Kong. So I worked for them in Hong Kong for three years, came back to England and... Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life and one of the things I did do was join the Territorial Army so the the equivalent of your reserve forces here in Australia and every time I moved to a different unit I said oh why don't we do a battlefield tour and it was like well you're in the army you organize it you research it and you make it happen which I did using the same company, which was a British battlefield tour company. And in the end, I got so involved with organising the battlefield tours, doing the research, and this was First and Second World War, that I then wrote to that company and said, you know, would you take me on as a guide part-time at that time? And at the same time, I joined the Guild of Battlefield Guides, which is uh, started off in the UK, something like 2003, something like 2004. And from there, the rest, they say, is history. So now today I obviously work for Matt McLaughlin and a number of other British tour operators, but predominantly for Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours. And which battlefields do you most often tour on? It has to be, uh, at the moment, the Western Front, because we've just come out of the centenary, and through the centenary, everybody was sort of like focused on the First World War. But uh, I also tour Normandy, Arnhem for Operation Market Garden. I've been out to Gallipoli, obviously, with you guys as a guide, Um, but predominantly the Western Front at the moment. You're British, obviously, and you live in the UK, Um, yet you often lead tours... um for us, for to the Australian sites, how did you come to learn about the Australian story, and what does it and, and and what does it mean to you as a British person bringing this Australian story to life? Um, how did I come to learn about it? My grandfather fought in Salonica. Now Salonica was part of that uh, Middle Eastern, the Middle Eastern uh, Expeditionary Force, but they were known as the Gardeners of Salonica because more soldiers died in Salonica from disease as opposed to enemy action, although there was enemy action. So from that, I got very interested in Gallipoli. And although there were British that fought at Gallipoli, you kind of think Australian because it's been such a, uh, I mean, it was the sort of birth of the Australians uh, um, really their national fighting in on the on 
in the First World War. Uh, so I very first went to Gallipoli before I started gu- guiding, fell in love with the place. And then you just pick up books and uh, then you get more and more involved with the subject. And I think the whole history of Australia is interesting as well as not only just the, the military history, the whole history of Australia. And to guide Australians, be, be it Gallipoli and the Western Front, you need to know about the bigger picture, you know, what was happening happening politically at home. So that's how I very first got interested in the Australian history. And I think it's because Australian people are so enthusiastic in their history. I, like you say, I come from England, where we have millions or thousands and thousands of years of history, and we tend to be quite complacent about it. But the Australians do their history very well, and are not complacent about it. Well, that's one thing we should say is that we only hire the absolute very best historians and you're one of our most popular historians. Thank you. Um, and I, I think that's the thing that what I always get from it is that whether it's uh, we, we have historians who live in France, UK historians who live in France or UK historians from the UK. And the thing that always strikes me is that not only do you know the Australian story inside and out, um, but that you guys are spending so much time on the battlefield. You're over there every week walking the ground and learning new stories and learning about what what new things there are to see over there because it is a constantly changing story there you know a farmer will plow a field and reveal something a bunker that no one knew was there or someone will find a shell stuck in the wall like they did at Mont Quentin many years ago so it's there always are new things to find and that's what I think is absolutely fascinating to have people who are there so often on the battlefields I'm jealous of how much time you get to spend on the battlefields do, do you find that when you head over there you're always making new discoveries a lot of the time you are and a lot we we also make new discoveries with the passengers we have on board the amount of passengers that have come on my tours with Matt McLaughlin who've had a diary and said oh joe we'll we'll copy this for you or when we do the research because we always do the research for your passengers who've got a pilgrimage you're always finding out new things um about certain soldiers and doing a battlefield tour is not just about dates, figures and dry history. It's about the personal stories. And if you get that little niche personal story that no other guides got, that somebody, one of the passengers has been kind enough to say, oh, yeah, you can use that story. I've had a couple of wonderful diaries. Then you're always on that learning curve. And I, uh, there are times, even us as guides, we can't answer a question but we endeavour to find out and every day is a school day on the battlefield. So whether you're finding something in the ground or some information from a passenger or something new that you've picked up from another guide or somebody locally, every day is a school day. You mentioned those stories, the human stories that bring a battlefield to life and everything that we do, you know, everything that I do in my career from podcasts like this one to walking the ground is about telling those human stories. Why don't you share with us some of the stories? What are some of the stories of wartime that that really move you when you're on a battlefield? What are the stories you share with your passengers that help them understand what it was like? What are, what are some? I mean, favourite isn't the right word, but what are the, what are some of the stories that you think are the most important to remember? Um, I think the sad stories. I've got a fantastic letter um, from a guy called Frank Steed, who was. One of the soldiers that was found in the mass grave at Fromel, and uh, it was his last letter home to his wife, Jean, and his daughter. I can't remember whether his wife was called Alice or Jean or what have you off the top of my head. 
but it's his last letter home. And standing at his headstone and reading passengers that very last letter, knowing that he now has an identity because he was the one of the ones that they managed to identify him through DNA. That's quite moving. Um, and actually, uh, I had a diary a number of years ago. I think it's one of my first Matt McLaughlin tours, uh, a very small tour. And it was a funny story. Because as a, a military historian, I think the tours we do are so emotional and soldiers weren't emotional all the time. They like they had a sense of humour like the rest of us. And this is a story about uh, an Aussie and his mate who decided they were going to, I think, borrow, shall we put loosely, a bicycle and go and visit a British Flying Corps mess and just make up a story that they had this friend there. Um, so they go to this British Flying Corps mess and they said, oh, uh, we're looking for so-and-so Joe Bloggs, for example, I can't say the name. And they get invited in, they get wined and dined. And the British Flying Corps officer says, oh, I'm very sorry, we can't find him in our mess, etc., etc." And they said, oh, don't worry, we'll come back tomorrow. So they cycled back on the borrowed bicycle put it where it's meant to be and just went back to their own barracks, having been wined and dined by the Royal Flying Corps because they made up the name of a friend they had serving there. So stories like that are quite funny. And I think you need to inject a sense of humour because I'm sure that the soldiers, if they were alive today, say, well, you know, it wasn't all endless mud, blood and slaughter. We had a sense of humour. We were human beings. So those sort of stories are always great to relay, when, especially when you've had a emotionally draining day on a battlefield. To inject a bit of sense of humour, I think, is always good. You're effectively an honorary Australian now. You're out here visiting lots of friends that you've made over the years on the battlefields. Um, what has it taught you about Australia, about modern Australia? The, you've, you know, I know how much you know about the Australians who fought in the First World War. What has it taught you about Australia, that connection to those men who travelled from so far overseas to fight in France in the First World War? What, what do you now know about Australia that you didn't know before? I don't think it's... I don't think it's taught me so much, but I'm always surprised that people come so far. I mean, because first, when I first started guiding, it was really the focus was on Gallipoli. And now we're getting more and more and more people to the Western Front. And the thing, I think I've taken three schools out now with Matt McLaughlin, that, that the, how passionate some of these school kids are. You know, and they do all the research on, they look at soldiers from their local towns or even old boys from their school and they do the research before they come over. And compared, compared to a lot of British schools, the, the Australian schools to be, seem to be that bit more passionate. Now, I think it's because it's such a much longer way to come whereas a British school you can take them you can do a day trip to eat with a British school um, and I think the thing is that has not say surprised me or taught me is the fact quite often and we were talking about this before um, back in the office you'll get a couple that will come on and generally I'm not saying all the time because I'm a female generally it's the, 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 the male of the couple that want to do the battlefield tour, he's been on his bucket list. But by the time both have left, you'll have the wife going, that was brilliant. I didn't want to come, but it just, 
I'm going to go away and learn more. And then the other thing you, you have is passengers who've been with me once, who've now become friends or been with me twice. They've gone back to Australia and said, I reread that book. And it just made sense because we came out and we saw the ground and ground is important. So I don't think it's taught me anything, but things, um, surprising things uh, have come up during the time I've been touring. One of the key aspects of visiting the battlefields is taking relatives over to, to see the graves of their relatives who died during the war or walk the ground where a family member was killed or wounded. What does that mean to you? How, 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 how does that feel to take families to the battlefields to help tell the story of their relative? It's the best part of my job. It's the very best part of my job. And generally, because it's a, it's a something I do time and time again, I won't say you become immune to it, but you, you become a bit hardened to it. But there's been times when we've all had a bit of a wobbly chin and a, a tear and, and it is the, it's, it's so important. So I don't know what um, some of the other historians do, but when I when I take passengers out to the Western Front, um, we take them to where their relative is buried and then I just ask the rest of the passengers just to give them a few minutes, 10 minutes on their own because that's so important. And for a lot of the passengers, they might be the first one that's come back. So... I, it's it's the best part of my job because you can see how grateful people are. And there was a, a strange story, a really strange story that um, if I can tell it very quickly, is that okay? Please do. Um, so a very strange story. It was a Bull Corps tour uh, 2017 and I had two sets of passengers on the coach, both of them wanting to go to the same cemetery, which is not that uncommon quite a lot of people have their relatives buried in the same cemetery and we get off the coach and I said to one set of passengers oh, we went up to the, see if there was a Commonwealth War Graves register and for whatever reason it wasn't there so I kind of said don't worry I can look it up on my phone we'll, we'll find it and one of the passengers she said to me she said don't worry Joe I've got all the grave details and I remember it to this day she said it was Plot three, row C, grave number 22. Because we should point out for people who haven't been to the Western Front, these cemeteries can be enormous. They're like a small city and you need a street map to find a grave. You would never just stumble upon a grave wandering around. You need to know where that's, that grave is in the cemetery or you're never going to find it. Correct. So, uh, so with the first passenger, it was plot three, row C, grave 22. And I said to my second set of passengers, she said, oh, Joe, I've got the plot number as well. And it was plot three, row C, grave number 23. So they were side by side, these two men. Two passengers had never met each other before. And this was our first day on the battlefield. They get back on the coach. And in the vastness of Australia, they live 20 minutes from each other. And it was just strange. And that happens a lot. It, it's not as strange as that. But uh, um, little coincidences you get with passengers, um and, and, and things you look up. And there was something I did on this trip. Um, oh, that was it. I've just been lucky enough to come back from the Barossa Valley. And one of the, um, ladies I stayed with, she took me up to the vineyard she worked in and they had this beautiful reception area with books. And one of the books was a book about a man that was killed on the Western Front from the 10th Battalion and they'd, 
put all his enlistment papers in this book and he comes from he was born and brought up 20 minutes down the road from where I live now so little coincidences like that but going back to what you asked um taking people back is probably um the highlight of my job I think you're absolutely right, Joe, because even though I don't lead many tours these days, when I occasionally do get to lead them, it's, it's just the most extraordinarily emotional part of a tour is, is taking family members back. And I always say that probably about 30% of our passengers on a tour are following in a family member, are following in the footsteps of a family member. But what that means is that 70% of people on a coach are not following a family member. But I find that it's very unifying for the entire tour that people really come together and, in September, I was leading the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour to the Western Front, um, one of the very few tours I have the privilege of leading. And there was one person on the tour whose grandfather had been wounded at Pozier. And when we got to Pozier, he had quite a bit of information about him and I, I was able to look up on the internet a little bit more information about him. And when we got to Pozier, I found, I discovered to my delight that the field where his grandfather had been wounded was freshly ploughed. And so there was no crops in the field. So you could see across the landscape very clearly. And also because there were no crops there, you could walk across the landscape without upsetting the farmer. Um, and I said, well, let's go for a bit of a walk. And I said to the group, I'm just going to take this gentleman and we're going to walk over to where his grandfather was wounded. And I turned around and the whole coach, 30 people, were coming with us across there. And then it was, we didn't even have to say anything. When we got to the spot, I said, I think we're pretty close now. We're right on the side of the trench and this is, this is pretty close to where he would have been wounded. And everyone just sort of stepped back and gave him his space and he shed a bit of a tear and it was a really wonderful moment. We took some photos there out in that spot, but just it's just such a, a shared experience for people to come and share in this incredibly emotional aspect of a battlefield visit. Do you find that on your tours? Yeah, I do, um, most definitely. And even the people who haven't got relatives, they are, um, you know, like you say, they do they do share. And um, so when I my Say, for example, we get a passenger off the coach to go and visit their relative. And then I say to, I always say to my, my uh, coach, I said, then if the passenger is happy, then I'll give everybody the thumbs up and we can all spend a bit of time in the cemetery and everybody gets off the coach. And the first per- person they go to is that relative to find out the story or to offer them a bit of comfort or what have you. So it, it is a shared experience. And I think the one thing, the good thing about going doing uh western well and battlefield tours is everybody has gone on that tour for the same reason so it's not like say if you were going to do wine and chateaus and somebody wanted to go here there and everybody everybody is got that common denominator which is either gallipoli or the western front once again favorite is probably not the right word but i'm going to use it anyway what which of the australian battlefields is your favorite to visit which one speaks to you the most which one's the most emotional for you bulacor um i did my uh master's thesis on bulacor and i love bulacor because i come up through um the way the german army retreated to the hindenburg line with the australians following them so we come off the motorway a bit further south of Bulcor and then we work our way back towards it through all the little villages that would have been significant to the Australians so Bapalm, Lagnacor um, and we come into a village called Noriel which was where the 4th Division had their headquarters prior to the attack. But this when, was fighting in 1917, 1917. As, the, as the Germans withdrew the Australians pursued them through all these little villages and then eventually to Bulacor and the virtually impregnable Hindenburg line. Yeah correct 
And the the one thing with Bullcore I find is because it's not visited, I suppose, as much as the Somme and Ypres, which is far more popular, the ground hasn't changed. And you can stand at the, the railway cutting where the Australians jumped off on the uh, – the, in April for the first Battle of Bulcor, and there's nothing there but the ground and to just tell the story and it, it's not a huge piece of ground and uh, that is has got to be my, my most favourite place because we get off the coach, we go down a little dirt track off-road and we walk down there to the railway cutting and then I tell the whole story and then we go right across the battlefield and we view the battlefield from the German perspective and because it was such a uh, uh, it, there shouldn't have been a battlefield, in my opinion. It shouldn't have been a battle fought there, in my opinion. But I could talk forever on this. So I, I agree. I, I, Bullacore is a battlefield that just has. There's a there's a weight of history that you find when you're at Bullacore. You're right. The battlefield hasn't changed very much. Uh, the, the lay of the land is still very much the same. There's been no development there. The little village is still there. The Australian Memorial with a wonderful statue of a digger on the side of the German trenches that were captured by the Aussies. And such a costly battle. I think it's 10,000 men were killed or wounded in the two battles of Bullock That's an extraordinary number of Australians lost, not to mention the British soldiers who died capturing the village as well, um, who often get overlooked as, as these things often go. But I agree, Bullock is just an ex- extraordinary story. And um, actually, we did a wonderful podcast um, last year um, with Richard Osgood, an archaeologist, about tanks. The tanks were used with mixed results at Bullock in 1917. And his archaeology team was excavating a site of, of one of the tanks. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in the Battle of Bullacor, certainly go back and listen to that, uh, that podcast that we did last year on the, the tanks of Bullacor because it was really quite extraordinary. Joe, you don't just lead to us around the First World War battlefields. You, we, we did a wonderful podcast last year as well on, um, Operation Market Garden up in Holland, which was one of the most popular podcasts that we've ever done. Um, thousands and thousands of people downloaded that and really enjoyed your telling of that story. So once again, if you're listening to this and you want to hear Joe talking about Market Garden, she's an absolute expert on it. Go back and listen to that podcast on Market Garden. But as part of that discussion, you talked about what a privilege it was to speak to veterans, to World War II veterans. Well, tell us about that aspect of your job because we're at a time now when there's no World War I veterans left. The World War II veterans will soon be gone must be a wonderful privilege to, over the course of your career, have spoken to these men who actually created this history on the battlefields. Yeah, it's been... Um, I've So I've spoken to a lot of the Normandy veterans. I had the privilege to take um, the... It was the Maidstone branch of the Normandy Veterans Association back to Normandy. I think it was for the 65th now. So I had the whole coach full of veterans um, trying to keep up with them, um, both in sort of... Uh, uh, when they got off the coach, they would just like bomb burst off the coach and late in the evening listening and telling a yarn or two over a beer was, uh, trying to keep up with them at that. I, the beer mate mainly was quite difficult, but it's been a real privilege and especially market garden from market garden. Um, like I explained to you, Matt, I have had a very special friend, sadly, who passed away last year, Peter Clark. And we remained friends throughout and uh, it was it's it's an honour and I think it's important that um we get their stories because they not too long in the distant future they're gonna be like like the World War One veterans where we have none of them left. So I think it's important uh to get their stories. 
Um, so they're there for the next generations. And I think the Imperial War Museum, as does the Australian War Museum, is doing these sort of getting as much information as they can now before they eventually um, don't exist and they're, they're part of history. Did you get to speak to many World War One veterans uh, in your time? I did when I was a lot younger, and I think when I was a lot younger, I was more interested in World War Two. World War Two was where I very first started, and I think that's with a lot of historians. You then go from World War Two to World War One because as you get older, you realise actually World War One was only a hundred years ago. Which, when you're a lot younger, that seems sort of an age away. Um, so it was only that I got into World War One later. And by the time I really got into World War One, I think there was, um, for the Australians, there was Claude Scholes left. I think he was the very last one to die. And for the British, we had Henry Allingham and Harry Patch. But I think those were the only two. There might have been three of them left, uh, when, when I was really sort of starting to become interested in the First World War. Isn't it terrible how we took them for granted? Because I did as well. I grew up in West Wyalong, a little country town, and I used to march with the school on Anzac Day, surrounded by World War One veterans, and I didn't even care to go and talk to them. It just wasn't important to me at the time. And since I've been passionate about war history and since I've been doing this as my career, there was only one World War One veteran that I actually got to speak to in that time, uh, who was Marcel Coe, who was a good one to speak to. He got a bullet through the knee at Villas Bretno. Uh, and so I was very privileged to speak to him briefly one Anzac day, but I only ever spoke to one World War One veteran in this whole time that I've been passionate about the subject. And now we're in the same situation with the World War Two veterans. People listening to this who may be interested in speaking to World War Two veteran may have sadly missed their chance because um, the World War Two veterans now that are alive are very, very old, late 90s, early 100s, most of them, and um, it's it's very difficult now for them to, to recollect a lot about what happened during the war. But that's why it's important we do this work, isn't it? It's why it's important that we walk the ground. I mean, I'm going to ask you that question. Why is this stuff important, Joe? Why, you know, there, there may be people out there who just say, why don't we just move on and forget about it? Why is it important that we do remember, and more than that, that we walk the ground? When I, when I close down a tour with you, I always try and close down at a cemetery called Adelaide Cemetery at Villas Bretonnet because the unknown warrior was, ex- for, for Australia was exhumed from there and then taken back to the war memorial at Canberra in 1993. And I always close the tour with telling people that we're all going to go back home. I'm going to go off on the Eurostar back to England. They're going to go on their holidays. They're possibly going back to Australia. We can go home and we're going to get up the next day, turn on a tap. Um, our children can vote for whoever they want to get great education. And that's all done because of the sacrifice that was given for our freedom in two world wars and is still being today. I mean, you look at our, um, service men and women, both Australian and British are still fighting for the right for freedom and for us to live in the privileged lives we do. And I think as soon as we start forgetting that, we are going to start making the same mistakes that we made in the past. And so I think that freedom shouldn't be taken for granted. And for me, it's a privilege to do my job. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I would still do my job. I'd just do it for free. Um, But I think that 
that freedom should never be taken for granted. And that's why I'm passionate that, that people should know what happened. And the younger, younger generation now should also know and should be taught so that we don't make the same mistakes. And what, what new perspective is gained by actually walking the ground? Because some historians are, don't see any value in going and visiting battlefields. They say you can learn everything you need to know by reading books and by looking in the archives. Why is it important to walk the ground? That's a difficult question because for me, it's a bit of a no-brainer. You have to be out there on the ground. And so many of our passengers have come over having read up on, say, Gallipoli or the Western Front and said, I didn't realise until we actually got on the ground distances. And, uh, you know, so if you're up in Flanders, which is flat, people don't realise that 60 metres, hill 60, is high ground. And suddenly they get it when you're stood at hill 60 and you're stood with your back to one of the memorials and you look in the distance and you can say eep. And then you can say to people, that's why this high ground was so important because you've got direct line of sight uh, straight into eep. So the ground was fought over. To me, the ground is as, is as important as the history because it's only when you're out there walking the ground that you get an idea uh, of of the lie of the land and the difference in ground. So if you're going down to the Somme, you've got rolling countryside, whereas up in Ypres, it's flat. And so the actual um, tactics change according to what sort of ground you're on. So I think it's extraordinarily important. Even something I think that Europeans take a little bit more for granted than we do as Australians, but climate plays a huge role. If you go to the battlefields in December or January... You're going to get a unique perspective on what the soldiers went through during the terrible winter months. And you go over there, it is bone chillingly cold. Uh, you go over, you go to Gallipoli in August when they did the bulk of the fighting. It is blindingly hot and it's difficult to walk around in August in Gallipoli. And you think, how did they fight in these conditions with dysentery? Most of them. How did they carry on battles? How did they dig trenches? How did they bury their mates? Uh, climate is an essential part of it. Terrain, everything about the landscape. It just reveals so much about the history when you walk the ground. So I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I asked that question playing devil's advocate a little bit because I have heard comments like that, but I, I agree that it's, it's absolutely essential that, that people get out there and walk the ground. It's what I love doing. I love relating the history of what you read in the history books to what you can still find on the ground. I think it's the most important aspect of what we do. A lot of people, when they speak to me, say, how can I go about becoming a battlefield guide? And I know it's a different story for Australians compared to people who live in Europe because people who live in Europe have uh, better access to the battlefields, which is the first thing I say to people is that it's difficult to do it from Australia. But what's your general advice for people who who are interested in, in pursuing some sort of career as a battlefield guide? I suppose, as you say, Matt, it is difficult from Australia, but, but I know quite a few people that have uh, joined the Guild of Battlefield Guides and that we're, we're not just... Um, uh, uh, an English group of people. We are an international guild of battlefield guides. I also know battlefield guides that have started off taking friends and family. Um, and gradually it is a difficult industry to get into. Um, a lot of us have come from a military background. And I'm not saying all of us, but we have uh, quite a few people. And so we found our way in from that perspective. But we've got a lot of people who have started off with fans, friends and family and then word of mouth, friends and family have said to their friends and family, oh, so-and-so does a battlefield tour. Um, so it's taken me a long time. I've been doing this 16 years. Um, and I, as you know, Matt, I don't just work for you, although I work for you as the only Australian company, but I also work for British companies as well. Um, but we generally have built up 
uh, reputation most guides by word of mouth. So I was recommended to work for you, Matt, by another guide. And it's a good way of doing it because, you know, if you recommend a guide to another company, you're only going to recommend good guides because it comes back on you at the end of the day. So I do think there's ways of starting to do it. And I think friends and family and then even if you just have to do it as a non-paid thing and then it's word of mouth that that is predominantly the way people work in this this business, I think. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us to give some of your insights because, as I said, I think many people listening would be very jealous of the fact that you spend so many days just walking the ground and telling the stories of not just the British soldiers but the your adopted country of Australia as well. Um, it's just been really wonderful. And if listeners out there want to join us on one of these tours with Joe, Joe leads many of our Western Front tours, and um, and so it's, it's I would absolutely recommend walking the ground with Joe. I, uh, I I'm looking forward to uh, one day in the near future, Joe, you guiding me around the battlefields because I'm sure it'll be a wonderful experience. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show and just sharing these insights with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And um, I've had a ball in Australia. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.